Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Martha Nussbaum. How are you doing, Martha? I'm fine. I'm very eager to talk to you. If it's okay, I'll read a bit of your bio. I think, I think some of my listeners will know you, but not all of them. And uh, so you are the Ernst Freund, I hope I'm saying this right, Distinguished Service Professor of Law, Law and Ethics uh, in the Philosophy Department of the Law School of University of Chicago, where my dad got his PhD. You gave the 2017 Jefferson Lecture for the National Endowment for the Humanities and received the 2016 Kyoto Prize in Arts and Philosophy, regarded as the most prestigious award available in fields not eligible for Nobel. The, you've won a lot of awards. And I have to say that when I... Don't list them all. That's all like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why I was... Like candy, you know. We don't want candy. We want nourishment. But I will tell you that when I was contacted about you, that just then I happened to be reading Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now, and he mentions you multiple times in that book. And so I thought this is yeah, this well, is stuff's going on in, in the world like to bring you to me. I know Steve, so that's not surprising that he would mention me. And now you've by the time this comes out, I think it'll be after January third, which is I believe when Justice for Animals comes out. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's your new book. And I, I have to say that it seems very brave of you to walk into it's a topic that is very I mean, I've been vegetarian since 1990, and people always, everyone's got an opinion. And yours is, I think, on the vanguard of a lot of what a lot of people are thinking of. And then there's also some very personal elements of, of your relationship with your daughter who passed, mm -hmm. I think, just about a little over three years ago. And so it's a very personal book. Uh, it's a big book. It's a very comprehensive book. I wonder, I, I was wondering if you could share what prompted you to go in this direction and write so comprehensive a book? Well, first of all, I had already written a chapter on this same issue about how the capabilities approach, which I had long developed along with Amartya Sen, could be used to think about animal issues. In my book, Frontiers of Justice in 2007, there's the last chapter is on that. And that had also been extracted and circulated in an anthology called Animal Law, New Directions. So anyway, I, I had already written on that, but I thought that was not very comprehensive and there was a lot more to be said. And in the meantime, I had been doing this collaborative work with my daughter, who was an attorney for animal rights, worked for the NGO Friends of Animals. And she really got me very excited about these issues. She worked in the wildlife division. So she was particularly concerned with the rights of marine mammals, elephants, and other wildlife, and did wonderful work and got me excited about it. So we ended up writing four articles together, which we presented at the Human Development and Capability Association, which is the international association that discusses and criticizes and tries to improve the capabilities approach. And so we did those four papers. And then along the way, I thought really, you know, so, so of course I was supplying the philosophy, she was supplying the law. Uh, I had learned enough. And I, of course, learned not only the law, but also the science, that I thought it was time to do a big book. And I started to plan it. And Rachel knew of the plan. And she, you know, read drafts of chapters and so forth. So before she died, I had written about half of the book. It took me a long time to write it. And then when she died, I really felt a strong impetus to put all my time into this and make it as good and as comprehensive as I could. So what that meant for me was immersing myself in the science. One of the things about our time, as I'm sure you know, is that there has been such wonderful scientific research about the abilities of animals that show so many different animals, from octopuses to birds to elephants, in a completely new light. And then, of course, that makes us think, what kind of normative theory do we need to direct our efforts? And of course, as you see from the book, I'm very dissatisfied with the ones that were already on the scene. And I, I can tell you more about that if you want. And I thought the capabilities approach could do a lot better and that it was worth developing that theory, theoretical approach in detail because that gave judges and lawyers something to grab onto that I think serves their purposes much better than the existing theories. So I really plunged into that. And I guess, you know, it was an act of love and mourning, really, because I thought, well, I can at least keep alive the commitments that she had and the work that she fought for by doing what I can, which is philosophy, uh, to contribute to that. Yeah, you mentioned you read a lot of the science before, but the book reveals that, I mean, 
after you knew all the science, there's a lot more science that you were pursuing, it sounds like. Yeah. Well, I read the science about specific animals. I had always been very interested in elephants, so I had always kept up with the science on elephants. Rachel's main interest was marine mammals, so she introduced me to the literature on those. But I really knew nothing about birds. I knew nothing about the octopus. So there was so much I didn't know, and so that was what I had to do. And it looked like uh, it looked like you had fun with that. I mean, it wasn't yeah. just um, abstract science. Well, you know, these scientists today are very wonderful writers. I don't know how they do it, really, because but they communicate very well to people who are not scientists, or at least many of them do. And so I found myself grabbed by what they were doing and what they said about what they were doing. And somebody like Victoria Braithwaite describes very detailed, rigorous experiments about fish in a way that really draws the reader in and shows them what's going on and, and really convinces the reader. So I just enjoyed that so much. And I was wondering, the it seemed like there were multiple audiences, and I wasn't sure if you had particular ones, because at the beginning of the book, the very beginning is very, very personal about you. Then you, you, then I felt like I was rereading a book on, on philosophy with Bentham and Mill and, and, um, uh, am I saying it right? Course guard? And... Well, those are the theories that I'm arguing against. Now, of course, they always have a philosophical underpinning and then a more popular aspect. For example, Bentham, uh, well, Bentham was pretty political too, but it was, it's Peter Singer who's taken that theory and, turned it into a form of activism. So there's always a division of labor there. Course guard's theory is too new. No one has really done much with it in, in law and policy. But I respect that book enormously. I thought it was an important book, so I did want to include it. And then I felt like the book, I, I felt like it ultimately led up to, then I felt like I was reading a lot of, here's some things to think. Well, then there's yours, CA, uh, that um, the capabilities approach, which because it's in plain English, a lot of people not might not realize this is capital C, capital A. Yeah, right. And uh, and then it's a lot of the ramifications of it, what that means to us, ultimately leading to, I mean, towards the end, you talk a lot about law. And I was thinking, I think you're a lot of this is where to take law and maybe a popular a book for the popular audience, but also for legal thinkers. I wasn't sure what the balance was there. Was, was I reading it right? Well, I think we're all participants in the development of law. Lawyers, of course, are, but, you know, the Humane Society, for example, pushes for changes in law. And many people that are going to read this would contribute to the Humane Society or would work for them in some capacity. So, of course, you don't have rights unless they're enforceable. Rights entail duties. And there are no rights for animals unless there's some enforcement mechanism, which the, the one that we human beings have invented is law. So, yeah, I mean, I think law is key. But, of course, the law is not just made by legal experts. It's made by all of us. And I tried to point out what needs to happen. And then people can get involved wherever they are. If they are indeed law students, well, my law students will go out and do that kind of work in great detail. I've enjoyed teaching law students. But on the other hand, as I say, anyone who either works for an NGO or contributes to an NGO or who just wants to know about what they're doing or who votes, because, for example, you often get to vote on whether these laws that forbid reporting and photography about the factory farming industry, the laws that are called ag-gag laws, you get to vote about whether those laws are repealed. So you as a voter need information. You get to vote about puppy mills, whether those should continue to be legal in the state or in the city where you live. So I point out many areas where the reader has really work to do as a voter, as a concerned community member. And then in the chapter on companion animals, I talk about, you know, if you love a cat, if you love a dog, you still need to think, what about the people who don't devote enough attention to their dogs and cats? What about the ones who give inadequate attention, inadequate exercise, and who think they love the dog or the cat, but really they are abusing them by neglect? What can you do about that? And I make some proposals about that. But once again, you know, like child abuse, it requires the law to get involved. There's no stopping child abuse unless there are laws against it. And there happen to be laws against domestic animal abuse in most jurisdictions. 
but they're not enforced. So we have to talk about what to do about that problem. And then I have a lot to say about that. And when you talked about things like standing and personhood, it brought me back to the first time I heard someone talk about rivers and streams getting personhood. And my first thought was, that's crazy. My second thought, and this isn't new to me, but um, we give corporations personhood, which you touched on. And I thought that was something to develop more. But at first, it sounds crazy. I don't know. To me, at first, it sounds crazy. And then it makes more and more sense. And then it makes, I mean, if we're going to make corporations legal entities or persons, then it makes sense. And how else does our legal system adjust to these things that are outside human beings that matter both to us and, as you put it, as ends of their own? They're not just means for us. Well, first, I'm not very big on the word person. Uh, I spend a whole chapter criticizing the approach mm -hmm. that says certain animals qualify as persons because it always ends up placing much more emphasis on complicated intellectual abilities that only some animals possess. There's no reason why Congress can't right now, without using the word person, say that animals have standing, which means the right to be a plaintiff and bring an action in court. Four countries have already done that. Argentina, Ecuador, Colombia, and India. And India did say that the animals were persons, but that was their particular route into the problem. The others did not. I think the point is we right now allow children who are, you know, six weeks old, people with very severe cognitive disabilities, whether lifelong or just in old age, we allow those people to be plaintiffs and go to court. And of course, they don't go to court in person, but actually, pretty well nobody goes to court in person. If you're intelligent, you hire a lawyer. But in this case, they need not only a lawyer, but they need a guardian who knows their interests and represents those interests. This is happening already. If I should have Alzheimer's later in my life, I would have a guardian who would then go to court and protect my interests. Well, why can't a dog or a cat have the same status? There is absolutely no constitutional reason why not. People who've investigated this say right now, Congress could do it if they wanted to. Well, our Congress is so dysfunctional, it's just not going to do that anytime soon. But pointing to the reasons why it's important still makes a difference, and pointing to what other countries have done still makes a difference. And the reason it makes a difference is there can still be good laws protecting animals. But what happens when those rights are not enforced? And that often is the case. Well, currently, to get the laws against abusing, let's say, dogs enforced, you have to show that you have a particularized injury. That's what confers standing. But right now, the only kind of injury that's admitted in our system is what they call an aesthetic injury. You have to say, oh, my eyes were so hurt aesthetically when I saw that dog being beaten. That just seems crazy. It's just the wrong reason. You should have... It should be because of the dog, not because of your aesthetic properties. So it's just our system has become deformed and diseased, and we have to fix that. We have to make it possible for people to intervene on behalf of the animal because of them, and that's what standing is. So in Colombia, for example, when the parliament voted to just simply kill a whole lot of hippopotamuses that Pablo Escobar had brought there, well, the people who were interested in hippopotamuses they didn't have to say, oh, I have an aesthetic injury. They were able to go to court as guardians and representatives of the hippopotamuses. And the hippopotamuses are the plaintiffs in that legal action that stopped them from being arbitrarily killed. So that's the kind of thing that would be possible. And of course, people are afraid of that. The factory farming industry is terribly afraid of that. Most of our animal protective laws that are good, some of them quite good, like the Animal Welfare Act, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Those laws don't even include animals that we eat because they could never pass it through Congress if, if they did. So I think any move in that direction is going to meet with tremendous opposition. But, you know, we have to be ready to go there and face that opposition and not give one industry a stranglehold over our political process, as right now we do. You mentioned those hippopotamuses, and in the book you mentioned, I didn't quite follow, that that's making its way into the U.S. How Could you explain that a bit more? Well, 
what's happened now is that a federal district court in Ohio has allowed U.S. expert witnesses to go and testify. And in the process, they said some very gentle, approving things about that lawsuit. It has no binding legal force, but people noticed it. And they thought, oh, well, pretty soon, maybe that same court or another court would be ready to take the bolder move of giving animals standing in the U.S. So, no, nothing has really happened yet, but just some approving noises have been made. But uh, of government officials within the United States? Of a a federal district court in Ohio, yeah. Okay, that's. I mean, to to me, that was very interesting. Of how these things happen. Yeah. It just so happens that while I'm while I was reading your book, I'm reading another book. Uh, have you ever heard of a book, Freedom National? It won the Lincoln Prize. About um, no, tell me. It's about a reading of the U.S. Constitution from well, from the Constitution. At, I guess it's saying basically at one point there were 13 slave states, and then there were then by the time of the Constitution there was. Uh, I forget the exact numbers, but you know the North. By the time of the Constitution, several of the states had had become free states, and then there was generations of legal scholars and people interpreting the Constitution in, in ways that, at the beginning, people thought didn't make sense. But mm. over the years, built and built and built, and to the point where, by the time of say the Emancipation Proclamation, so much had been built that it. it I mean, I think I certainly before reading this book thought, well, Lincoln just did that. But no, there was just generations of, of, I think, what you're doing, but in a totally different area. Yeah, absolutely right. And that's what happened with women, too. So even after women had the vote, obviously, they didn't have equal rights in many other areas. And the Equal Rights Amendment, as you know, has never become law. Nonetheless, through piecemeal judicial interpretation. Women have gotten almost all of the same rights that they would have under the Equal Rights Amendment. So, yeah, it's often a very piecemeal matter. And it's uncertain and it can go both directions, as we know, with abortion rights. So, yeah, we have to keep trying. One example of how piecemeal it is, is the issue of puppy mills. You know, these commercial breeders who breed dogs in very substandard conditions and they are full of diseases and so on. But they market them far from the original place so that people don't know about that. And they just think, oh, here's a cute puppy in a pet shop, and I want to buy that puppy. Now, how can you stop that? The problem is that the point of origin is not the same as the point of sale. So Chicago, for example, hates these puppy mills and wants to stop them. But the puppy mills are pretty well all in Missouri. And the people of Missouri, they did once vote in a law that said puppy mills were illegal, but the governor refused to sign it and it got all snarled up. And uh, finally, it just failed. So puppy mills are still going on in Missouri and marketed in many places. Now, Chicago finally found a way to pass an ordinance saying any dog that's in Chicago marketed through a pet shop. I don't like the word pet shop. I think it's undignified to the dogs and cats. But anyway, Anyone that's marketed in a pet shop, it cannot be sold. It has to be an adoption of a registered shelter animal. And the animal has to come from a recognized shelter. Then the puppy mill people in Missouri made up some phony shelters that were called like A to Z shelter dogs and so on. And they smuggled the puppy mill animals in under this bogus shelter. Then one alderman found this out. You see, this is how how chancy it is. There's this one alderman had to do some digging, or I guess the people who worked for him did the digging. They found this out and they exposed these phony shelters and passed another ordinance saying that it has to be registered in some further, more secure way. So right now things are pretty good in Chicago, but just think what the Missouri people do. They go to some other suburban community. They go all over the place. So each community has to pass a law. And that's very slow and very uncertain. If you can't stop it at the point of sale, you really just have to work in every jurisdiction. And that's very hard. Do you see yourself as part of a, of a movement or kicking something off in terms of the, the legal side of things? The, I mean, it's hard for me not to think of it in terms of, uh, because I'm reading Freedom, Freedom National, of, I mean, you talk about um, virtual constitutions and things that 
hopefully would they become implemented, but just not yet. So do you see this as... Well, I think there's one difference, which is that it cannot be implemented in a worldwide constitution because there is no world constitution Mm -hmm. and there never will be. So the trouble is that a lot of animals aren't the denizens of any one nation. So nation-based laws aren't enough. We have to have some kind of international agreement, but that can't take the form of a, a constitution as such. So that's why I say virtual constitution. People have to work toward that goal as if this were a constitution. But, you know, I want to say something first about why I think that my view is the best one to start the movement. So the approach right now that's most prominent in U.S. law is that of Stephen Wise and the Non-Human Rights Project. And he picks out certain animals, apes, elephants, and he says whales, although he hasn't done any litigating on behalf of whales. And he says they should be given the status of persons because they're very similar to humans. Now, I think he does that not because he doesn't care about other animals, but because he thinks he can win cases that way. But I think that's short-sighted. Where you can go depends on the theoretical framework you're using. And right now, his framework is very inadequate. It leaves all other animals out in the cold, has nothing to say about the horrors of the factory farming industry. And it gives the wrong reason. It's because of us, not because of the animals, right? So I don't think that's a very helpful theory to go forward with. And then there's the utilitarian theory, Peter Singer's theory. And that's, of course, much better because it focuses on the abolition of gratuitous and wrongful pain to animals. Pain is very, very important. I totally agree with that. If we could only eliminate all the pain, we would have done quite a lot. But the truth is that it's actually not enough because animals need many things other than freedom from pain. They need the society of other creatures of their kind. They need lots of space to move around in. So if you think of a humane zoo that doesn't inflict pain on its animals, but it still keeps them in little enclosures and they can't see a big herd of other elephants, for example, and it also deprives them of the kind of space that elephants typically need, like walking 200 miles a day, that kind of zoo could get a pass, I think, in Singer's world, because Bentham's theory just said pain is the one bad thing. Nothing else is bad. But, you know, if you grow up in such a zoo and you don't know what your species characteristically does and what kind of society it characteristically has, you're not going to feel pain at what you miss. And that is a problem for utilitarianism in the human world, too, because it it means that, let's say, women in developing countries who are told higher education isn't for you, if they have no access to information, they just might believe that. And they wouldn't feel pain when they're denied that. So that's what economists call adaptive preferences. Their preferences are not frustrated because they're formed by the bad status quo that they're in. So animals and people have the same problem with utilitarianism. And so that that's the reason why I don't fully trust the utilitarian theory, although I'm happy to make partnership with it. And I, I know that Singer, too, has the eagerness to, you know, cooperate with people who have other theoretical positions. But I also notice that my theory is what scientists are intuitively doing and saying. They, the people who write about dolphins don't just say, let's not inflict pain on dolphins. They say, look, dolphins need a pod of 30 to 40 other dolphins. They need free movement, not confinement. And, and they go on and on like this. And furthermore, they need it in order to learn to be themselves. It's not like their behavior is genetically determined. A lot of it is socially learned. And if they don't have the society, they can't actually get to be dolphins. So scientists are saying this sort of thing. And then judges who read the science and who care and who go to look at animals, they've started saying this sort of thing already. So I talk a lot about the case that invalidated the U.S. Navy's sonar program. Pretty big victory for animal lovers because U.S. Navy is a powerful institution. And this law had been around for a long time, the Marine Mammal Protection Act. But people had typically, so what it says is that any program that has an impact has to have the least practicable adverse impact on the marine species. 
and people had interpreted that only in terms of pain. So it doesn't inflict pain. That's not an adverse impact. But this judge came along in this case called NRDC versus Pritzker. So NRDC, National Resources Defense Council, another great organization working, taking cases to court. And uh, by the way, the Pritzker, who was the defendant there, was not my governor. It was his sister, Penny Pritzker, who was then Secretary of Commerce. So anyway, um, this case said that because the sonar disrupted the migration behavior, the reproductive behavior, and the emotional health of the whales, and you can test and show that their stress hormones are elevated and so forth. Therefore, those were adverse impacts, just the disruption of characteristic behavior. So to me, that's, that's what my theory is about, is about wanting this, each type of animal to be able to live in its own characteristic way. And these judges didn't read my work, of course, and they, I mean, they, they could have read the older book, but they didn't. And uh, I mean, I'm sure they didn't. And they, but they went out and looked at whales because these this judge was sitting in Seattle, and that's a popular pastime. So they knew something about the behavior of whales, and they cared about that. And they said, of course, that's an adverse impact if you can't reproduce or if you have to migrate with reduced energy reserves and and so forth. So that is the way I think my theory is already working its way in to the law, but I want to give it a kind of boost. Now, listeners are going to hear a lot of things that they're going to think, yeah, well, what about bugs? Or what about, like, what makes an animal, I mean, you go into a lot, we're only going to touch on things here because the book is really much more comprehensive. But listeners who are interested, she's not talking about the things that there could be questions about, she goes into what makes an animal worthy. uh, I mean, Sentience is something that I'll just use the word here. And if you want to describe it more, feel free. But I just wanted to make sure that at least she's not casually saying these things. And the book goes into a lot more depth. Yeah, absolutely. I have a whole chapter on sentience, which which to me means that an animal has a point of view on the world, that there's somebody at home inside, so to speak. It sees something from its own subjective point of view. That includes the capacity to feel pain. And testing whether an animal is sentient often involves pain because that's something you can do experiments with. I would hasten to add not very bad pain. These experiments with fish have used moderate discomfort. Uh, So anyway, uh, but that means that up till now, it's thought that insects don't have sentience. Probably not crustaceans either, though that's disputed. But cephalopods, like the octopus and the squid, do turn out to have sentience. So so we just have to follow the science. But in any case, the theoretical criterion is to get protection under my theory of justice, you have to be sentient. And that's because it's justice we're talking about. And I think justice really means, and I say this in the very first chapter, the wrongful thwarting of a sentient being's striving. You have a point of view on the world, you see something you want to get, you try to get it, and then someone comes along and blocks you in a way that's either malicious or negligent. And so that's that's what I'm out to prevent. Now, there could be many other reasons for caring about forms of life that are not sentient. Insects have great importance in ecosystems. Plants, of course, have enormous importance in ecosystems. So we can care about them for instrumental reasons. We can also care about them for their own sake. But I would say that they are not subjects of a theory of justice. So I'm just talking about sentient animals. Here's one. The, this might be a little too far afield. So if it's too far afield, let me know. But when you were talking about what animals would and wouldn't be sentient, I started wondering, I mean, some people talk about ecosystems having a sentience. And you were talking about individual animals. Right. So sometimes you'll have trees plus the fungal stuff underneath that gets them to communicate and they can react to things. And, and you didn't mention fungi. So I was also wondering, mm-hmm. what about, and also, I mean, we humans have a lot of stuff in us that is not our own human cells that I think we would die without. And I wonder if you thought about that or if that was too far afield. Well, I think there are all those things you say, but not enough to convince scientists and I'm talking about the vast majority of scientists, that these other things are sentient, meaning have their own individual point of view on the world. And I really do think each individual creature 
is the one that deserves protection. I'm very against group rights in many spheres. Whenever you hear that, oh, we should protect the family, that usually means not protecting women, because in any group, some individuals are subordinated. So our constitutional tradition, and I think it's correct, says the individual is the locus of justice. And I think that's true in the animal world too, that you know what ecosystem you're a part of. Let's say your ecosystem wants you to be the low creature on the totem pole. That doesn't get rid of your rights. So I think each creature has rights because of what it is, if it's a sentient being. And no one has yet convinced me or the vast majority of scientists that plants or bacteria or fungi are sentient in that way. Now, that certainly doesn't mean we shouldn't care about them, learn about them, because of the way they support sentient life, but also for their own sake. They could be of scientific interest. They could even be worthy of ethical interest in some other way. But justice is what I'm talking about. Well, I was also thinking about the. it could be that a collection of individual species, uh, individual animals, and collectively create something that's a new entity that is... Well, I don't know how to describe it. I, <laughs> I know what you're saying. But I mean, look, even the extinction of species, in my view, that's a problem only because that always happens through damage to the individuals in it. Species is not a thing. It's, it's actually a rough categorization that biologists don't, on the whole, really even approve of. It's a rough cut at what is common to many populations. So a species is just not an it, and you can't do wrong to a species. So I, that's why I didn't discuss the corporation case, because I think that's a terrible legal direction to take to include under constitutional law something that's not an individual. But anyway, that so that's why I didn't talk about that. But, you know, that doesn't mean, of course, as I say, that these things are not worthy of interest and study. It's just in a different area of concern and study and even possibly law. But, you know, we could have, and we do have laws against the extinction of species. But for my purposes in terms of rights and justice, the reason why that matters is that if they're not enough of a given kind of animal, they can't live their characteristic life. Each one is depleted. Each one loses reproductive opportunities, migration opportunities, and so on. So think about the right whale right now, which unfortunately our Congress has just pretty well doomed to extinction uh, by this rider that allows lobster fishermen in Maine to continue to use fishing lines that cut into the bodies of right whales. Susan Collins fought hard to get that provision, that, you know, let the lobster fishermen off the hook into the budget bill. And now that means that the right whales, who are only 340 in number, in the entire world, are very, very likely to become extinct. To me, the reason that matters is because individual whales suffer, but already they suffer because they don't have, there are not enough other whales to have sufficient mating opportunities. It's not because there's an it called a species that will suffer. So that, and, and of course, we could also say our world is the poorer when any species becomes extinct, but that's something else. That's not for reasons of rights and justice. Of the individual whale that gets hooked, gets, gets cut by the line. And the, so, okay, the rights and justice part explains, there was an angle that I didn't see you pursue that to me is very interesting. Are you familiar with uh, EO's, EO Wilson's half-earth proposal? No. I think I know what you mean, but just tell me again, just to be sure. So he recently passed, uh, but his proposal was to keep half of the earth um I don't want to say wild because this is something, and, and this is something worth uh, worth yeah. going into here. Okay. But keeping human, keeping we got. I guess we'll have to talk about what wild means. Is there wild space left? How much? But I think one of the points you make about um, whether space is wild or not is that we humans dominate a lot of the earth, maybe all of the earth, and and the sea and the air. Yeah, every yeah the the yeah. biosphere, the biosphere, and, and beyond, and. Uh, to me, reducing the dominance is one of the main things of, I mean, you talk about population, you talk about consumption and greed, but I think one of his things is to protect areas from human, um, let's talk about what wild means and is there wild because I don't want to, um, 
it's something you go into a lot of, and I think most people haven't thought about. Well, I think it's obvious right now, if you really look at it, that there is nothing in the biosphere that that could be correctly called wild in the sense in which that was originally intended, meaning that it's just not dominated by humans, not controlled by humans, where the animals are free to be themselves. Now, you know, take the land. Every piece of land on the globe is dominated by humans. If there is a large wildlife preserve, well, that's about as wild as it gets. But of course, those wildlife preserves are carefully stewarded by the nations that they're in. And they're stewarded not only to make sure that the animals are doing okay, but but they intervene in certain ways. They spray them for tsetse flies. They keep poachers out. I mean, I saw a whole army of Botswana military marshaled on the border of the nature preserve in Botswana. So to me, those are interventions, of course, but they're benign interventions. I'm all in favor of that. I think we should absolutely be intervening in, in such ways, because that's the only way right now, given that we do dominate the globe, animals will ever get a chance to live their own lives. Same is true in the seas. So when, once we get beyond coastal waters, nothing can be done really right now, because international law is hopeless to protect whales. And what's happening is they're choking on plastic trash that all people are throwing heedlessly into the trash. Only about 2% of single-use plastic ever gets recycled. And whales eat it because it looks attractive and shiny. And then they can't digest it and it stays in their stomach. It calcifies into a plastic brick. And so then they, they can't eat anything else and they die of starvation. So those are the things that are happening. Oil companies drilling for oil make a constant din, not only by the drilling itself, but by sending air bombs down to the floor of the ocean to make a map of its surface. Whales all over the world have stress levels that are higher than ever before, and scientists certainly can test that, and they have. So in the air, of course, there's air pollution. There's the fact that migratory birds fly into buildings that are not sufficiently marked where the lights are on at night. Now, those things happen, and the only way to stop them is through human action. So I'm all in favor of things like marking buildings. My own law school building is made of glass. It's a 1950s building. Last spring, migration patterns changed for some reason. All of a sudden, dead birds all over the front porch of the law school. And we had to fix it. And we intervened by putting stickers on the windows. But that's what I mean. So the whole world is human dominated. And there's no point in saying wild, wild, wild. What we have to do is intervene in benign ways, in ways that allow the animals to live their characteristic lives. And that's sometimes not possible. But often it is possible. We can't, I mean, so far, we haven't yet stopped poaching. But I think we can if we pay enough attention. But with the birds, you know, we really have done quite a lot in the, just in the last few years, realizing what happens when birds collide with buildings and why it happens and how to stop it. So this proposal to keep half the world for the animals, if it were at all feasible, it would have to be done. So it's like a contradiction in terms. In my view. It would have to be done by the most massive act of human intervention, because number one, we would have to dismantle all the structures that are there that are inflicting pain on animals. That would involve massive human population control that would have to be, you know, it would be so massive that it would have to be imposed by very dictatorial means that nations right now would not tolerate. It would mean just removing all the oil oil rigs from the ocean. How, so he doesn't seem to realize that that just isn't a politically feasible project, or if it were, it involves tremendous intervention in human and animal lives. So uh, I would say, not. I first of all, don't even think it would be ideal because I do think humans sometimes do things that are benign, like spraying for tsetse flies that help animals live their own lives better. Human beings also do surgery for animals in ways that are not domineering. I mean, so they don't like kidnap the animal and put it in a zoo for life, but they, in the, in the wild space, so to speak, in the wildlife preserve, 
they do surgery on the animal and then eventually when it's well enough, they release it back into its own animal group. So those things I think are benign interventions that are good to keep on doing. But in any case, um, the, the hope of having half the globe for animal is not realistic short of the most massive kind of intervention, and I don't even know how it would happen. Well, it just so happens that listeners to this podcast will have just heard uh, Tony Hiss, an author who wrote who knew E.O. Wilson and wrote a book on it. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's more optimistic on that on that direction, but I, I, I can't give it justice to describe it. Well, I think he first has to start by thinking carefully about human population control. Now, I agree with my collaborator, Amartya Sen, who's written quite eloquently about the sort of top-down controls on fertility imposed in India during the emergency and in China under the one-child policy. He believes that this takes away a fundamental human right from both women and men. And he points out that the research shows that actually the best way to keep population relatively in check is to educate women and empower them. And so for our current issues, that, that would be enough, I think, if women were really empowered to have control over their own fertility, population imbalances would gradually correct themselves. But to have half the globe suddenly freed up for animals, I, I guess he wants it to be in the foreseeable future, you're going to have to impose top-down dictatorial controls. And they would have to fall, I think they would fall unequally on poorer countries, which have a higher birth rate typically, because they have such a high death rate. And so are you going to really say, oh, African families, no more children? I think it's racist, and I think it's terrible, and I think it deprives people of fundamental rights. So on population, E.O. Wilson and Tony Hiss don't talk about that, but on population, Educating education does work. There's lots of there's Michai Viravadia has been a guest on this podcast. Who um, there's lots of things also that that are the opposite of dictatorial, opposite of one child policy, opposite of what happened in India, that um, that affect population a lot as well. I mean, well, I agree that it works, but it doesn't work on the scale that would be necessary to suddenly free the globe, half of the globe, right? I mean, so I think what it works for is to keep population within roughly current limits rather than exponentially increasing. Uh, But there's no reason to think that it would cause the immediate sharp decrease in populations that would be needed, particularly in Africa, where you really have competition for resources between humans and animals is in Africa, where, well, I mean, there are other places where there is a conflict, but usually it's because of greed, like the ranchers in Wyoming don't want so many wild horses. They want to kill the wild horses because they want to make more money out of the cattle who would graze on that land. Well, that can be politically solved by just curbing the greed of the ranchers. But in Africa, poor villagers don't have enough to eat. And elephants are eating the vegetation that they need to stay alive. And so although the elephants are endangered and the people are not, it would be really brutal to tell people, no children now. Sorry, no children. So I just feel that it's the scale of it that would be necessary, that it would require the globe's poorest people to bear the burden of a drastic population reduction. Rich countries have already gone below replacement rate. All of Europe, the U.S. is close, and so on. So it's really Africa, because of the tremendous poverty and the tremendous health issues that, that they face, that where the birth rate is higher, and they would have to be told, oh, sorry, no more children. The elephants need your food. And I think that's just not the way to do things. There are NGOs who are working on negotiating between villagers and elephants who are doing very good work. And I think that's the way to go. But, but you know, it's the scale and the sharpness and the suddenness of it that would require people, if the governments of the world got their act together and agreed to this, they would have to impose population control by drastic and dictatorial means. To get through that, it would have to be so much below replacement rate that it would have to be a sharp drop. Well, let's leave it there. I, I, th- that's not what they're proposing. Uh, well, they, well, how are they going to get there in the time that you and I could foresee then? The, 
I'll leave that. I'll, I'll send you some links because I don't want to. Uh, I can't state it as well as they can, and it's not uh, a casual idea. But um, I also wanted to get some to some other things. Um, well, also, I mean, talk about consumption. We in the West are the ones who are consuming the most, and to me, when you say get rid of all the oil rigs, that doesn't sound like such a bad idea to me. I mean, obviously, we're not going to go do that overnight. Also, but that's I mean, the boardrooms of the most polluting companies is where these decisions are made. It may be played out somewhere else, but yes, I mean, I, I would like to ultimately to get rid of all the oil rigs, but I can't imagine it happening suddenly, short of very undemocratic dictatorial action. I just happen to think democracy is the best form of government. And I don't believe in even benign dictators telling the oil companies what to do. I would like to tell the oil companies what to do, but I don't think I should because I'm just one person in a democratic country. So I think if these things happen, they have to happen because people demand it. And after making provision for the livelihood of people who right now get their livelihood in these industries. Yeah, I think the people demanding it is something that's missing. Uh, I think people talk about it a lot. Right. And I think a lot of us take for granted that we need a certain level of consumption and therefore a certain level of pollution that if we questioned, we wouldn't. And if we did question, I think we'd, I mean, I think a lot of us spent a lot, a lot of us put a lot of money into things that pollute, things that, you know, put plastic in the ocean, things that put the pollution mm -hmm. in the air. And we could stop that. And you do a lot of this in your book of pointing out where there are false dichotomies. And I think you talk about Hegelian solutions of, of you know, you don't have to get stuck right. thinking it. Maybe you could share more about that because I think a lot of people feel like, what does she want us to deprive ourselves? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think, first of all, most people don't realize the damage that oil rigs do in the oceans to marine creatures. And that's, they know a lot of bad things about oil companies, but that's one thing they don't know. But yeah, when you have a situation that seems to threaten to inflict damage either on humans or on animals, and there's some sort of a tragic face-off between the two, First of all, you have to ask whether that's really true. But if it is, let me take medical experimentation. Right now, we get a lot of good discoveries through research involving animals. So far, we've been able to curtail research on apes, but I think that's for the reasons that I've already criticized, because they seem so like us and so on. But we haven't stopped at all. And this research, of course, is good not just for humans, but it's for other animals, too. So what I suggest doing is, first of all, recognizing that we're doing wrong. They have to say we're doing wrong in either direction, because if we fail to do the research that saves human lives and animal lives, we're doing wrong. But if we do it in the way we're now doing it, that's also terrible. So then the first step would be to try to imagine a future that didn't involve that terrible, tragic face-off. And I think that's already being done. That is to say, do this research through computer simulations, through technological models. It's more reliable anyway, if the models are good, because animal models are not really all that accurate for human diseases, and indeed for diseases of other animal species other than the ones that are being studied. So aim at that. And then as we're trying to get there, meanwhile, Make it clear that we can't inflict gratuitous pain on animals, that experimental animals have a right to decent conditions, and all the things that David DeGrazia and Tom Beecham's book have gone through. But the, the Hegelian goal, I, I, it's Hegelian because that was what Hegel, the philosopher, said we should do when we're confronted with a tragedy, is look way ahead and imagine what it would be to have a world that's free of that tragic face-off. I think that solution is absolutely in sight. And there are many other cases of that. You have to say that the more that I've acted sustainably personally, despite at the beginning thinking, well, what one person does doesn't matter, and maybe not everyone can do what I've done, the more that I do it, nonetheless, the brighter the future, uh, the more living sustainably is different than what I expected of, I think, what society teaches us, that it's deprivation and sacrifice. And it's much more community and connection and freedom and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. joy. And so just the experimentation also on a personal level changes, dare I say, changes everything, certainly my perspective. 
Yeah, I think we can't throw away science. We have to rely on science to fix the problem. I mean, look at the wonderful things that happened with COVID. I by now had six vaccinations and I had never had COVID. So I'm really happy about what we've been able to do. And there are plenty of other cases of that. So we have to use the science to fix the problems that we're in. But science can do things much better. They're already starting to use computer models. Uh, when you have surgery, typically they use they have a com computer screen there and they're looking at your insides on that screen. So the more we can do that kind of thing, the better. But there are other areas where we have to think how to do what we want to do. And science can help us show us the way. Now, we've barely scratched the surface here, and I know that you have a snowstorm bearing down on you. And, yeah, uh, the snow is starting. Uh, oh, really? I'm looking at outside. At Lake Michigan is over there, and the snowflakes are falling not very hard right now. So I'm hoping, yeah, <laughs> well, let's hope that I can get home in time. Well, let's wrap up with, uh, is there anything I didn't think to ask uh, or a message you'd like to close with? Well, I guess the main thing is, even though this is, I, I think this refers to things I said earlier, but I just want to stress it again. Even though this book is about philosophy and about law, it's really about all of us. I think all of us have a role to play. I, my role happens to be to write books. But I think everyone who reads this book has something that they can do in the way they live, the way they bring up children, the way they teach the way they work, maybe do volunteer work or contribute financially to a humane organization, the way they might adopt a shelter dog and then not just treat it like a toy, but treat it like a real member of the household, like a real companion, and all of those things. And there are just so many parts to this issue that everyone has a place to be. And I, I, I end the book by saying justice is all of us, and that's what I really, really mean. Martha Nussbaum, thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodek.com slash donate.